wanted to talk a little bit today about God's word is and the analogy in the Psalms is that it's a lamp unto our feet. And if you want to know how to live, being in God's word is a great way to start the year. And so I want to encourage people to recognize that scripture is something that we need to be pouring into ourselves, into our children, and it is the way of understanding. And somehow, over the years, I think we've become complacent. I know I have. But I do hunger and thirst for good, you know, depth of study. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the gospel uh, approach to the story of Jesus. Because while we celebrate something called Christmas, you don't find Christmas in the scripture. In fact, uh, Christmas was actually a uh, pagan holiday that was uh, preempted by the Emperor Constantine in 318 uh, AD. And it was a, uh, a celebration of uh, basically for people to celebrate the, the uh, winter solstice, the fact that the days were getting longer. And it was a big feasting holiday. And uh, quite frankly, that has nothing to do with the scripture about Jesus' coming. It's interesting that Luke's gospel uh, starts off in chapter 1 with the story of John the Baptist. And by chapter 2, within seven verses, we go from Augustus Caesar uh, proclaiming that all of the known world is going to be taxed by the Romans and they wanted to take a census. And we learn of Quinarius and people who were actually born in history. This stuff happened. This is not fairy tale land. And within those seven verses, we discover the shepherds and the angels. And we know those stories. And we also, within eight days of the event of Jesus' birth, which, by the way, the, most scholars think that Jesus was not born in the winter months, the Romans were very proficient at taxation. And if you're going to go out and you know, want people to go to their hometowns, you don't do that in the middle of the wet season, where it's slippery and wet and cold and difficult to get around, kind of like it is on Southwest these days. Uh, but if you're going to do a census, you usually do that in the spring where people can get to where they need to go if it's going to work. And so most scholars think that, you know, Jesus was probably born in the springtime. But the fact that he was born is what we're focused on. And we don't know an exact date, but we do know that the Roman history says that it was done when... Uh, at that time, eight days after Jesus was born, we end up in the temple, according to Luke's gospel. And we're there to understand two things. One, Jesus was going to get his name because on the eighth day, a male boy was to be uh, circumcised. Circumcision was a purification act tied to sacrifice. There had to be something given, in his case, 
two turtle doves or two pigeons would be sacrificed. I have some Jewish friends and you know, the circumcision uh, is, is really an important part of their worship to this day. They call it a bris. I've actually was asked to be at one. I didn't go, but I, was, I learned a bunch of information about a bris. The parents sit up front, the grandparents are there, and as the rabbi removes the foreskin of the male penis uh, boy, uh, sometimes there's blood involved, and if the blood happens to strike the family member, that's a sign of good luck. Uh, but, you know, I've often thought about how, you know, maybe God could have done something that says, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you just cut off your arm, and then you'd know you'd be able to go. Well, he actually tried this once with circumcision, with, uh, you know, going all the way back to Abraham. Uh, and so, but there are two people that we meet in the scripture there. Uh, the first one's name was Simeon. Simeon was a man uh, whom God had told that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And Simeon was known as a man whom would, uh, he was looking for what was called the consolation of Israel. And the consolation of Israel was basically coming from the Holy Spirit. For he said, there would be a time for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. Going back to the very promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis uh, 12, where God covenants that through Abraham's seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so in addition to Simeon, we meet a female prophet by the name of Anna. She was 84 years old. She never left the temple. Of course, she would have been restricted to the court of the women at that time. But she fasted and prayed night and day. And she too sees Jesus and proclaims him to be Messiah. Now, while all this was happening, um, Luke's gospel then jumps at verse 39 all the way back to when Jesus was 12 years old. So. That's all we know from Luke's gospel. The gospel of Mark, which was the very first gospel we believe, actually begins in chapter, uh, first chapter with, again, John the Baptist. And the first time Jesus is introduced in the gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus is being baptized. And so we have no background on his birth at all. And he goes into the wilderness. I think there's a reason that for Mark, you know, the birth was not that important. He's saying, let's get to the message of Jesus first. And so we have nothing from Mark uh, dealing with the birth of Jesus. Matthew's gospel is, I think we can appreciate the fact that in the very first chapter, there's uh, 17 verses of genealogy. Now, growing up Church of Christ, I learned to quote that scripture that uh, the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy 
and he said, don't have anything to do with genealogies because back then if Uncle Harry was a horse thief, he didn't get into the genealogy. And so genealogies uh, were always suspect, but when they're in the scripture, there's this beautiful flow of how the generations in chapter one of uh, Matthew show how God was performing his miraculous ways to put things together. And it, it shows exactly how many generations between the events there that happened. It's a fascinating read and wish we had time this morning, but we don't. Um, so Matthew begins with the details of the birth of Jesus. First of all, we learn that the child conceived is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think about the word Trinity, you don't find that in the Bible either. There's no such thing as, you know, Trinity. And yet we find that there's, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we read also in Genesis that in the very beginning of creation, God spoke the world into existence. And that, that creative force, uh, we believe, was what we call the Logos. That's what in the Gospel of John, which was Jesus. And I didn't go into the Gospel of John because we, again, don't have time today. But, you know, it says that that Logos became flesh and he dwelt among us. But for Matthew, it was important to see that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, that kind of makes Jesus's daddy the Holy Spirit. Try to wrap that one around your head a bit. And yet at the same time, God declares to the Jewish people that for Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. So one equals three? That doesn't work in our you know, minds mathematically, but somehow God is revealing himself in different ways, but he's the same. And seeing how scripture ties these things together, to me, helps me to give the, at least the ability to see what God was doing. Paul says we look in a, through a dark mirror. We get to see glimpses. We, we don't see the whole thing. So in Isaiah 7.14, which is quoted uh, here in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, we read that the virgin shall conceive a son and his name shall be Emmanuel, or God with us. He is born like Adam, in that Adam was created by God, who basically, through the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So Adam, in the very beginning, was created by God, and Jesus is also created by the Holy Spirit in much the same manner. They are alike, and Jesus is almost a second Adam. That's important because the consequence of the fall is that we are going to sin. We cannot get around the fact that when we're born, 
you will sin. And the plan that God has is to be with us and to correct that defect. The fulfillment of prophecy is a way to see scripture that gives us hope. In the uh, gospel, we have this story that Kay read about the Magi. And in chapter two of uh, Matthew, we find this group of people. We don't know exactly who they were, but we know they came from the area today, what we call Iran. They were from Parthia. And uh, the key here is the fact they were not Jewish. These were astrologers is probably the better uh, designation. Magi is the Greek word, which sometimes was uh, translated with uh, the concept of magician, but it's really more, they see this event in the sky and they somehow says, the king of the Jews has been born, we need to go see this. And we're thinking, well, how did they know that? Well, God is working with all people, not just the Jewish nation. And so they come bringing gifts. And we don't know how many of them there were. You know, traditionally we say three because there's three gifts of name, but you know, we don't know if there was more than three. Um, The gifts were gold, uh, which signified royalty, frankincense, uh, which is a fragrant resin, and myrrh. Myrrh was also a resin that was used for two events. It was used for anointing, and it was used for burial. And so, again, the gifts of the Magi are signifying something about what God was doing with Jesus. So the Magi, they go to Herod, and they say, where's the place where the you know, uh, infant is born who's going to be the king of the Jews? And it says that Herod became extremely afraid including all of Jerusalem. And yet, when he calls for the scribes and the uh, other people to answer the question, they very quickly come up with the answer. And the answer is Micah 5.2, and it also refers to 2 Samuel 5.2, stating that, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. So this is almost better than GPS. I mean, think about it. Bethlehem, which is where David was born, was the beginning of the Davidic kingdom when he was established. It's five miles south of Jerusalem. It's a small town. And... Obviously, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to have Jesus' circumcision uh, done there. And the tying it into David is unique in that the verse that is quoted uh, refers to David's kingship. It's interesting that David became king when he was 30 years of age and he ruled for 40 years. 
When did Jesus start his ministry? Age 30. Coincidence? I don't think so. So the Magi are told in a dream to not go back to Herod. And so we have what I call the great escape. Um, they, uh, Joseph, again, is told in a dream to take his wife and Jesus and to flee to Egypt. And again, why Egypt? And why isn't this in the other places of information? Well, out of Egypt, I have called my son is a quote from Exodus, 7, Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. And that particular passage is very poignant, and there's a whole lot that you could, you know, talk about that. But basically, Moses was told to go to uh, Pharaoh, and he was to say, Israel, talking about the captives who were slaves at that time of Pharaoh, he said to let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh said no. And so God's answer was, I'm gonna kill your firstborn. So there's an, a, a pattern here of both justice and mercy, but when God says to do something and you don't do it, I think there's consequences. And so we see the pattern of what Matthew was trying to show is that out of the scriptures, when these things are fulfilled, it gives us a feeling of knowing that God is still in control. Deuteronomy 30, 31 says, the Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord God carried you just as one carries a child all the way he traveled until you reached this place. Sometimes when you're in the presence of God, you still don't see him. And the people that were in the wilderness with Moses, we know that their clothes did not disintegrate over the 40 year period. They were fed with manna. They had God in their presence, a tabernacle that you know they could see the cloud. And yet they still didn't understand and it got to the point sometimes where they said, no, we were better off in Egypt. And God said, I'm not taking you to the promised land. He said, you're gonna die in the wilderness and I'll raise up a new generation, which he did. And Moses didn't get to get into that either. So it's kind of like when Jesus was standing in front of Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? Well, if you can't see what's in front of you is truth, truth is, I think, Jesus. It's the personality of Jesus. And 
Pilate did, couldn't recognize it. And so how did Jesus answer? If you can't see it, you can't understand it. We uh, then come to the hardest verses, I think, here, dealing with what is sometimes called the massacre of the infants. When Herod saw that he'd been double-crossed by the Magi, he became incensed. And so he sends out his troops to kill every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. You know, that's a, a poem... That's a mass slaughter of infants. And yet, we're to remember that same story being repeated. It was in Egypt when Pharaoh commanded that every Hebrew child would be thrown into the Nile River and be fed to the crocodiles. So it's nothing new. And yet, that event, what if you were the mother of a two-year-old living at the time of Herod in Bethlehem, how would you feel? We've heard this morning that one of our former members lost a daughter to an automobile accident, 19 years old. I can't imagine, I've had two children with near-death experiences, but they did survive. But Losing a child is probably one of the hardest things in the world to overcome. And yet, I believe that Job probably said it best, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This passage coming from Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. That's called a lament. And in the world that I live in, it's broken. There is much lament in this life. And we can't get away from it. That's why we need a savior. What's interesting is, that is a quote from Jeremiah 31:15. And today, Rachel's grave is actually still in Bethlehem. And I think we even have a photo of what it looks like today. It looks like a mosque because Bethlehem is an uh, Arab uh, part of the state there. But Rachel's tomb is still there. Again, to me, the history of this is so important to understand. So if you go to the book of Jeremiah and you read that passage that we just read, that's in uh, Jeremiah 31:15. You go down to Jeremiah 31, <clears throat> 31, and it begins by saying, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
a covenant that they broke, though I their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the, the hard side of we're going to call Christmas if we're going to use that word. I think of the battle between good and evil rages today just like it has since the days of Adam and Eve. I look at the fact that Jesus' birth is an interesting story, but it's only the beginning. And I'm glad we have this, these ties that show us how God was from the very beginning providing a way to redeem the world. And I often think about how, you know, God made us, why did he give us that ability to choose to reject him? And the answer is because to love, it has to be your choice. And today, sitting here, you get to make the choice. You can either be within the body of Christ or not. If you're outside the body of Christ, you're in trouble. That's not a threat, that's a reality. And what Jesus wants is for everyone to come to him. That's what we call the good news. You see, he desires your heart, but he won't force it ever. And that is the essence of what faith is all about. He came to save everyone. Emmanuel, God is with us. He wants to live with us forever. There's only one place that's safe. It's called the church. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Today, you have an option. If you want to be part of that body, we can fix that today. But more importantly, for those of us who grown up in the church, we need to be intentional about everything that we teach. We need to understand the scriptures and apply them and make them live. I think the Holy Spirit works today like he was working in the very beginning. I can't see it, it's like the wind, but God is here with us.